You can turn to Matthew 5, verse 43, as I get my stuff set up. Yeah, it seems like maybe I'm losing my voice, but uh, hopefully we'll be fine. We'll see. I kind of feel like Peter in an episode of the Brady Bunch, but uh, we'll see how it works. Yeah, so if you don't know what Brady Bunch is, Google it. <laughs> Peter losing voice. There's probably a whole video on it. But uh, so we're going we're gonna to look at this. I'll read this um, as I get <coughs> one more drink of coffee here. But remember, this is the, what we were talking about at the welcome. These people, you know, you have heard, the you here is plural for the most part, but it's still, it's assumed people who are trying to follow Jesus. Obviously, at this time, he hasn't died yet, but this is close to disciples you can get. He's bringing these people that want to know about him together. And so that's in the background. This is essentially the Sermon on the Mount is about personal relationships between believers. And then sometimes we're talk, talk about people who aren't, which is what this one does. So verse 43, you have heard that it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. And yes, we will hit that one here at the end. You may be perfect, even as your Father is perfect. We're going to use our... our uh, tactical way of looking at the Bible, never read one Bible verse. This is in context, and we'll look at that toward the end. Verse 43 is a blatant perversion of the law. You go back into Leviticus 19, uh, 17 through 18. It says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord." So when, it, when Jesus says, you have heard, he's not saying it is written, because it's not. This is what people are teaching. Uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Notice what it does. It leaves out as yourself, and it adds hate your enemy. So you should not leave out part of Scripture, nor should you add to it. That's one of the things you're not supposed to do. It also kind of gives a view of what a neighbor is, because this is, we're going to get to this a little bit later when we look at the uh, Good Samaritan again, but look at this, you see this in this text, you know, what is a neighbor? You shall reason frankly with your neighbor, you shall not take vengeance to bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. At the very core in Hebrew, the word for neighbor means one who you have a commitment with. That's your neighbor. Now we'll look and see what Jesus talks about later. Um, and I think sometimes you see the, the people, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, is taking that teaching maybe a little bit too far, that meaning. Uh, but <coughs> common sense will get you a long ways, and we're going to use a little bit of that today. Um, so what do they do here? They're rationalizing the law to make it more human, applying to us only. Uh, so... Is showing care only for fellow Jews? That's the kind of the question Jesus is trying to answer. Or for us, for fellow Christians. Do we just show care and love for each other, or are we supposed to do that for outside? And how are we supposed to balance that? Um, he's not really telling that here, but we do get some of this in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 19, a little later, do not take advantage of foreigners. Some translations will say sojourners. 
foreigners who live among you. Don't forget that. Um, these are not people who are just passerbys. These are people who come in. They're not Jewish, but they came in and they essentially became part of the people. They're, but they're not Jewish by lineage. Um, they live among your land. Treat them like native-born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. Remember that you were once foreigners living in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So, you know, this transposed on the first century Palestine. You, you have Jews that don't want to treat Romans, don't want to treat Gentiles like they treat Jews, but here we're told to do that, especially if they're among you. In Proverbs 25, if your enemy is hungry, give them food to eat. If they're thirsty, give them water to drink. I don't know if you knew this, but you've probably, uh, man, I'm getting all these 70s shows. Uh, anybody remember Hogan's Heroes? That's where I learned of the Geneva Convention. <laughs> it's the first time I ever heard of it. Uh, the Geneva Convention was, I think, was done in Geneva, if I remember right. Uh, but it was the idea that even in war, there are certain ways to treat people. And if you, re if you remember that show, they were in a prison camp and they keep bringing that up. You can't treat us this way because of the Geneva Convention. This is kind of the verse, among others, that that comes from. Even in war, you're supposed to treat your enemies if, you know, obviously if you're prisoners at this point, uh, in ways that is compassionate because you're Christian. Um, so that's in the Old Testament and obviously in the New. <coughs> so he says, if I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, God never demands a double standard of morality from us. It's you have to be moral to people you know and you can be immoral to those you don't very well. Um, and this came to me last night. Um, I would like to say it was a vision, but it was actually during watching a ball game. But uh, but you do find a lot of things when you watch ball games. But uh, I wonder if the enemy here is in, is in the church. <laughs> you know, maybe it's not just people outside. You know, because that can happen. I mean, not here, uh, but some churches, you can actually people actually get mad at each other. I have heard that even in families, people get mad at each other. Have you heard that? You know, not your family, just you know, not my family. But it, you know, it, you wonder that. Well, who's your enemy? It's the one you have something against. So maybe it's even talking about that. But I think when we look at this, this neighborless idea, and, and I'm not going to go to Luke 10. We kind of know this one, and I can summarize it again. You've got a certain man fell among thieves. But remember what he's asking. This starts out with the great commandments, you know, that, you know, what must I do to be saved? You know, you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, the guy asked, seeking to justify himself, which is an interesting line. Who is my neighbor? You know, you think about that. Well, that's a bad thing to say. He's just, okay, I know the Old Testament. You, how do you see this? Who is my neighbor? You know, because again, the, the word in Hebrew for neighbor, and it comes in, and we'll look at that in a little bit in, the, in Greek, is the one you have a commitment with, the one you have something. You know, now what is neighbor for us most of the time? The person who lives next door. You may or not even know them. You may hate their dogs. I don't know. It's just, it's a different word. We don't use it. Back then, it was, it was people that you had, it, that you were lived among, you know, and, and, and had some commitment to. So notice when he tells this parable, you know, a certain man fell among thieves. You got the priest, again, who would be the one who does the sacrifices, kind of like, you know, holy guy number one. And then you got the Levite who though they're not a priest, would be ones that kind of, you know, make sure everything's there, you know. Somebody's got to clean up all that blood, right? Um, 
that type of stuff. Make sure you got bulletins, you know, and make sure people got places to sit in the temple and all. That's the Levite. Um, holy guy number two, both of them pass by. You know what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's trying to get this guy to think about. You can be the most important person in the world and not treat people well. Um, and then the Samaritan, and, and you don't need to get on all that, but Samaria was, people didn't even pass through it. And go to John 4 and see that, but the Samaritan, the Samaritans come up pretty good, the Gospels, if you read it. Um, but the, notice Jesus' question at the end. It's not, he didn't really answer the question. He said, which one of these acted like a neighbor? He's changing it, isn't he? He's not saying that this guy essentially wasn't a neighbor. You know, it's not who is my neighbor, because technically this injured man is not the guy's neighbor, not the way that word is used. But that's not the point, he's saying. It's not just look around and see who am I obligated to be nice to. It's who's acting in a loving way. Here to want an emergency need. That's what we have to be careful with this. You know, you've got good Samaritan laws out there. If you, if you see somebody that's not doing well and you, don't, you go past, you can get arrested in some states. Uh, and it's harder now, isn't it? You know, back then... There were very few carjackings. Donkey jackings, maybe, I don't know. But very few carjackings. I mean, it's, it's a little different now. If you see somebody on the side of the road, what's your first thought? My first thought is I hope they have a cell phone. And, my, and I, I'll probably stop if I can, but if, you know, I always remember if it's a, a, a woman by herself, I don't know if I'd say stop. Now. Because I know you've got to use common sense, too. Uh, but, uh, but again, so you've got to be careful. You've got to take it to context. But this guy's in emergency need. The, the, the parable is set up. This guy's going to die. He's going to bleed to death if something doesn't happen. Uh, so what Jesus is trying, and I think that's what he's doing, what is our moral obligation to the person in the given situation? And how do you know that? Well, you have to know what God teaches, and you have to use wisdom. You have to think it through. What should I do here? And, you know, and his parable's not hard. You know, we don't know exactly why, but the priest probably maybe didn't want to touch because he thought he was dead. And if you touch a dead guy, you're kind of out of commission. You have to take a vacation for seven days as a priest. So the Levite may be similar. You know, I don't know. We don't know the motives. We're not told. We're just told they, did, they weren't. And the question isn't who's the, it, it, who is my neighbor. The question is who's being neighborly. So in not emergency situations, what do we do? Well, we've got plenty of scriptures, and this is common sense. The love, the care should be focused more on those we have a commitment to. You look at 1 John a couple. We're going to look at 1 John a lot today because it's got about love about love and how we do it. So now we can tell who are children of God and who are, not, who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. Isn't that interesting? There's a different level of commitment here. Be kind to one another. The one another's is kind of the neighbor of the New Testament. There's like 130 of these. One another, one another. It's the people in, that you have a commitment to in the local church, really, is what it comes down to. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Well, that one another makes sense because if it's a non-believer, they don't have no commitment to forgive you. But if it's two believers, you both have a commitment to forgive each other. Might be one of the reasons that Paul says in marriages you should be yoked in the same way. You should both be believers because you'll both want to be forgivers. 
And it doesn't work good if you don't. But this is it. This is the common sense. Think about it. If you've got, you know, so much money each month, should you spend a lot of money on helping people in foreign countries and then neglect your own family? Or should you take care of the ones you have a commitment to and then if you have left, didn't give it to people? Which one makes more sense? What would we call the first one? We like this word, at least I do. Well, it's kind of stupid, isn't it? You know, if you make $1,000 a month, which if you do, I'm sorry, but and you send 900 to somebody else and, and then you have to go play bankruptcy, that's not smart. You know, you've been put where you are to do this, the same with the local church. You listen to most uh, really good podcasts that are more national uh, for Christian teachers, they'll almost always say, if they ask for money, give to your local church first, and then if you have any more, you know, maybe you can send some our way, because they know how important that is. So we have to hit that. And Jesus isn't saying that we're supposed to love our enemies and those in foreign countries you know, more than we're supposed to love the people that he's put us in charge of. So, but also, the, the other thing we get is the word love. Uh, how, uh, the command to not is not good feelings about your enemies. But to do and want to do good for them and pray for those who persecute you. Now, you think about when we're going to look at what prayer might be good. Uh, but I love this C.S. Lewis quote. This is a mere Christianity. God asks us to love our enemies. He doesn't say we have to like them. Isn't that cool? Isn't that good? That gives you a def definition of love, right? Again, in, in, those, in those hypothetical families that have problems, not yours, you know, sometimes your enemy's right in the family. And you might not like treating them loving in a particular situation. But you're still supposed to. The key to understanding this is understanding what true love really is. It's non-sentimental but practical, and it's humble, and it's sacrificial, and it's Christ-like. That's what love is. Now, emotions are in there. I'm all for emotions. But they can't be the base of it, right? I mean, what do you think the Good Samaritan felt? I mean, we, we get a little bit of that, right? Because it said he had compassion. So he probably felt compassion, and that's helpful. I'm more likely to help somebody on the side of the road if I feel compassion. But if it's somebody I should be helping, whether I feel like doing it or not, I probably should still do it. Because <laughs> love ultimately is an action, not just a feeling, right? That's, that's agape love that we get, and that's always through here. It's based in your will. And so you treat them like you love them even if you don't feel it right now. And I mean, pray for the feelings. I think that's fine. And we look at way, the way God, you know, how does God treat us, how we're supposed to treat others. For if we were enemies, while we were enemies, Paul writes in Romans, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So we were enemies of God. We weren't his friends when he died for us. How much more when we are reconciled that we shall be saved by his life. It's the idea, you know, be Christ-like. He loved us when we were enemies. He's kind of bringing that in here too. So what does this mean? The goal for the kingdom servant is to behave like his father. That's what this is all about. And so to reach the mature level of supernatural transformation. There was an old Jewish prayer, you can read this in rabbinic literature, in the, before Jesus even came along. Pray for your enemy that he serve God. Oh, that's what we're supposed to pray. Because what happens if the enemy starts serving God? Well, hopefully he's no longer your enemy. 
that would, I still think I, I you know, you probably thought of this, but uh, what would be the solution to all wars? Every true, everybody truly followed Jesus. <laughs> I think that would take care. We wouldn't need it anymore. Uh, we can pray for that, right? I think we continue to do that. You know? Well, it doesn't work very often. Well, I don't know how often it works, but we can pray for that. Pray for your enemy that he served God. So how should we pray as Christians? You know, how should we look at that? Well, I think Ephesians 1 is a good place. If you're going to pray, there's a lot of good prayers. We'll get one here in the next chapter. Asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom. I mean, think about if you're praying for somebody, even if it's an enemy, somebody's done something again. Give them spiritual wisdom and insight so that they may grow in their knowledge of God. Pray that their hearts will be flooded with the light so they can understand the confident hope He has given those He has called and His holy people who are His rich and glorious inheritance. If you start doing those kind of prayers, ah, now something's going to change, right? Let's pray. I mean, why wouldn't we pray that for enemies? You can pray that for your neighbor that you don't like, right? This is the best prayers, you know, the prayers that talk about changing your heart. That's kind of what He's getting at here. Maybe we can pray for them to, to, to be believers. That's really what it comes. But he goes on. He says, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain, not lately, but uh, on the just and on the unjust. Uh, this is called common grace. It's the idea there's saving grace, which is the grace of the Holy Spirit coming into our hearts when we reach out for God and he changes us and we become, you know, regenerate, born again, born from above, in Christ, whatever word you want to use, saved. But common grace is it just God, you know, He doesn't just have the rain fall on the just. Um, of course, when you read, when I read that, of course, I'm not the unjust, right? Neither are you. We're, that's other people. <laughs> but that's the idea, you know, although, and that's why we have to be so careful, because if, if somebody asks you the question, does God love everybody, what would you say? Yeah. But how much good does that do for each person? You know, only those who truly follow Christ and have a saving connection with him does it really matter, right? Love not returned is not, love has to have two objects, right? So, and although our followers were instruct, instructed to love non-believers, to instructed to love enemies, the deeper commitment is to each other, back to First John. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. That doesn't mean you can't show love to people outside, but your main thing is here. And what happens when churches do that, when we treat each other with other-centered, willful, sacrificial, Christ-like care? <laughs> Things get, we become a family. We start and once in a while we'll annoy each other, but then we go back to the enemy scripture and we get right back into love. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. If we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? This is a sobering scripture, isn't it? Sometimes it's easy to love God because you know what? He's barely lovable. People are harder. Again, nobody around here, but there are annoying people out hard to love. Not us. We're, we're never annoying. Um, but this is the Christian standard, to love like God, not like man. And it's hard. That's hard to do, I think. You know, it takes a lot more 
intestinal fortitude to love somebody that's unlovable than it does to just act like everybody. That's what he's talking about. Even the tax collectors do the same thing. The worst heathens out there do it. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Fallen man is not incapable of loving. Obviously, it says right there. But all human love is tainted with self-interest. That's the problem. You do it because you want something back. Loving enemies has no self-interest. You won't get anything out of it. In fact, you sometimes get smacked again if you love your enemies. But again, what does it mean to love your enemy? Send them Valentine cards? Chocolates and stuff? You know, what, what does it mean to do that? Well, I think, what did he say? Pray for those who persecute you. I think Praying that they would, the, wasn't the best loving thing you could do for somebody who's your enemy is to help them see Jesus. I think that's kind of what he's talking about here. But this is impossible without the supernatural grace of God. We have to have that. You know, we can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. I don't even know how you do that. I don't even have any boots. But we can't do that. We can't do this on our own. We have to have, and that's another thing about the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of like those guys go in and they're kind of like, oh, the bar's about right here to follow Jesus. And Jesus gets done and it's like, Whoa. I thought this was going to be a fun sermon, Jesus. You know, it's like really high bar. Getting us to focus on the. So this extra love, Bonhoeffer, it is the love of Jesus Christ himself who went patiently and obediently to the cross. The cross is the differential of the Christian religion. It's the only religion where when you think of love, you think of cross. Nobody else does that. You know, and we do this during uh, Holy Week, you know, sometimes you talk about, well, why the cross? You know, maybe we'll get into that this time too. But if you think it through and you can do that, you know, if you want to go to lunch with us, we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll talk whatever you want. Unless I don't like it, then I'll change the subject. You know, why the cross? It must have been the best way to show love. It must have been the best solution to the problem. It must have, because obviously God and his sovereign will knew that long before it happened. He could have done it a different way, right? He could have in the beginning created and then did something different, but he didn't. Don't we have to think that's the most perfect view of love? It's the differential, as Bonhoeffer. It's the thing that makes the difference. It's why we wear crosses around our necks to remind us of this, you know. <coughs> I think my voice is going to make it. I really do. Somebody want to go nuke this for me? No, I'm just kidding. I think it's good. Yeah, I've thought about that. Did Jesus ever lose his voice? You think he was preaching this and he started squeaking? I wonder. Did Jesus ever get sick? Huh. This has nothing to do with the sermon. Maybe we can talk about that at lunch if you want. I just, I never, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I'll have to do some research. <laughs> I don't think he's ever said he's sick in the Bible, is he? Interesting. Guys, quit bringing this stuff up. You're getting me off target here. So here's the main one, right? The 48. We take this, and a lot of people take this out of context. It's hard enough to understand in context. You therefore, you therefore. <laughs> That's an interesting word. When you see, remember this, you know, this is, I didn't come up with this, but I think it's good. If you ever see a therefore in the Bible, you need to see what it's there for. It's a summation. So, you, you know, it's summa summation of what we've read, what we've taught. You, therefore, must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
So what does Jesus mean here? You must be perfect. Well, in Leviticus, we have something similar for Yahweh. And if you ever have this in your Old Testament, that's the Yahweh word. Um, just if it's all caps, just to let you know. So I am Yahweh, your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, even as I am holy. So Jesus has kind of taken that and changed, you know, using the, the Greek word perfect, which isn't the same, um, but it's similar. But what does Jesus mean? Remember we went back a couple weeks ago, we talked about, he said, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but come to fulfill it. So I think he's talking about the holiness, which well, holiness has to do with, with action, right? It has to do with uh, how you live, how you treat people, how you follow God. That's holiness. You set apart, do the right, be righteous. But this teleos word, which is the word that's translated perfect, could mean complete, meaning the goal, or perfect. And if you, I know we, we're not Baptists, but if, does anybody have anything other than perfect in their translation? Sorry to wake you up. I didn't <laughs> mean to. Well, let me look in another translation myself. I can do that. Perfect. That didn't help. Anyway, it could be translated complete, and, and it is in other places. But what does it mean? It's like, think about it that way. You, therefore, must get this to the completion, even as I have made this complete. Well, what's he talking about here? What's the context of this? You're supposed to do what to your enemies? Love. So I think he's talking about love. So I think he's saying that your love's supposed to be complete, that your love's supposed to meet the goal, that your love's supposed to be like the Father's love. I think that's what he's talking about. Now, and I'm not trying to make this easier. It's still hard. But go back to, you know, you all know John 3.16, or at least most of you do. I mean, it's always in football games. They always hand that up. I always thought it would be interesting to put the one in front of it. First John 3.16 is a really good verse. By this we know love. Boy, when you see something like that, that's cool. And it's like, well, I wonder what love is. I wonder what God thinks. Well, by this we know that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down the lives for the brothers, the believers. Kind of same context we're talking about. So how do we know what love looks like? Well, you look at the cross. That's what love looks like. Greater love has no one to give his life up for his friends. So you start getting this idea. And I, I think women have trouble with this too. But guys, we get into that, well, this is, you know, Love is mushy and, you know, and Hallmark Channel stuff. And, eh. and then I stand up here and say, you know, I saw a Hallmark movie. I thought it was pretty good. And they're like, oh, man, my pastor's a wuss, you know. <laughs> well, it ended good. I mean, it's kind of nice. I always figure if I want a movie that ends bad, I'll just go outside and read the news, right? Sometimes it's nice to just get a good ending. Um, but it, you know, when you think about what love really is, it's, it's much deeper than an emotion, right? It, but it, it is emotional too. Um, I mean, this is the love of Jesus. You know, was Jesus a wuss? <laughs> Ain't nobody at the E-Free Church going to call Jesus a wuss, right? We don't do that here because he's not. I mean, think about the love of a being that could have not gone to the cross and could have completely wiped out everybody if he wanted to. I mean, that's, that's strong. I mean, I wouldn't, I mean, going through it yourself is hard enough, but he could have not gone through it, and he did anyway. 
You know, it's, it's, it's just, and so this verse is one to remember. How do I love? What does it look like? Well, do it like Jesus did. And yes, you probably won't do it as perfectly as he did, but that's the goal. Can I get there? And once in a while, we hit this. Once in a while, I think in our relationships with other people, we actually do love like Jesus. Well, lots of times we don't, but we try. That's our goal. Be perfect, even as I. Be complete. Show that love. First John 4, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfect. That old idea that the only Jesus somebody might see this week in your life is you. And you don't want that. I mean, I'm sure it's happened to me where I've, you know, done something, acted in a way I shouldn't that somebody sees, and they think, well, that's what Christians act like. You want the opposite. You know, you want, oh, that's what, oh, that's good. I might want to know Jesus more. You don't want to get to the end of the day and have had some actions that make people want to run the other way from Jesus, right? So we haven't seen God, but they see you. They see us. So the Father's love is perfect. Our love should be the same. That's the goal. And don't give me this patronizing nonsense of, well, I can't get there. Yes, you can. Why would he, wouldn't that be mean of God to say, well, I want you to get here. Now you're only going to get down here. <laughs> That's just mean. You know, you, you be holy as I'm holy. You be perfect as I'm perfect. You know, you're not going to get there because we're all sinners. And, you know, it's like, where does it say that? You know the word sinner is never used for a believer in the Bible? I'm not saying you all don't, but you're not characterized by that. And that's not the goal, is it? Do you wake up in the morning and say, well, you know, I'll sin like 18 times. I hope you don't do that. I don't know if you knew that, but that's not perfect. <laughs> you know, we're like baseball players. Who the, is, are going to play if you haven't heard? That's kind of cool. Yay, rejoice, emotion, love. But you don't, you know, the bar is high, but isn't it? every relationship, every temptation, we are given the power to overcome it. We're told that. And what happens, the cool part about it is if we fall short, the grace is still operative. You know, it's just, well, what's your motive, you know? So if we're truly sons of God or children of God, there should be a family resemblance. That's kind of what he's talking about here. Ephesians 5, therefore be imitators of God. As, but how do you do that? What do you, how do you imitate God? Does that mean we're all supposed to get crucified? It would be sad, but it wouldn't help the sins of the world any. How can you imitate God? I think you just let Jesus take you by the hand and show you. You just, what did he do? Well, I'll try to do that too. Or what would he have me do in the given? Alfred Plummer says, to return evil for good is devilish. And again, you can read the news. To return good for good is human. That's kind of what Jesus is talking about. Even the Gentiles do this, which is a term for a non-believer there. To return good for evil is divine. Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So last week's command was a negative one. Do not resist evil. Don't re get revenge on people. Justice is fine. Mercy is even better. But do not give revenge. That's God's job if he wants to do it. This week's positive. Love your enemies. Love with no self-interest. Love with nothing in return. Love just because I'm going to treat this person well because I'm told to whether I like it or not. And I think pray to like it. Pray to have the motive to do that. Pray for the feelings. I think that's great. But don't not act because you don't have them. This is active love, what he's talking about here. So you got the negative commandment, the positive commandment. And again, he's kind of 
fencing in and things again, isn't he? You know, think about it. If you love your enemies, what's the chance you're going to kill them? Very low. <laughs> so it's, again, the same kind of deal. Now we're, not, we're getting, see, we're going from murder to anger to justice, past revenge to mercy to love. It just keeps getting deeper, you know, coming in, coming in, coming in. So Jesus, to sum this up, you know, the Pharisees apparently had wrong, wrongly placed two serious restrictions on love. First of all, it's not for those who've wronged them. Somebody does something bad to me, then, you know, I just do something bad back to them. It really, this really works good in marriages. You know, somebody goes out and they spend too much money on the credit card, then you want to get another credit card and spend more too. Because that always solves the problems, right? <laughs> I mean, I, common sense does enter in, doesn't it? it? It should. Not for those who wronged us. And again, until last night, I really never thought about this. It could be in our own church. It could be in your own family. It's like, wow. I don't know if you've noticed, this stuff is really good. <laughs> and the Sermon on the Mount, he almost like, I think he knows what he's talking about. So that's the first one. You know, you, you still treat others the way you would want to be treated, and not for outsiders. Yes, we are told in the Bible in Old Testament and New Testament that you have a specific commitment with family and church, but it doesn't mean we don't help other people when it makes sense to do so. And how do I know when it makes sense? Wisdom. There is a time, obviously we all know this, that we can help somebody and it actually ends up hurting them. The Good Samaritan is not one of those, right? This dude was going to die. You help him and ask questions later. You know, you don't say, do you have any insurance? What's your median income? <laughs> In emergency situations, just help. The problem is, and you can read When Helping Hurts, the book we've read, a very good book on helping people in the church and all that type of stuff, and when, it, when does it hurt. You know, what happens is we take these emergency situations like the Good Samaritan and turn it into a time when it's development, when they should be developing and trying to help this person with their dignity and keep treating it like an emergency situation. That's when we get in trouble. Um, and so your assignment for this week is to read uh, all of Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy and then see how they did it. How did they do this programs and stuff. It's interesting. Or you can read Ruth. That's another good one. Again, use wisdom. This is an emergency situation. We treat it like an emergency situation because we have compassion on somebody, whether you're from their tribe or not. So it is, there are times when we help. What we can get in really big trouble with is if we do so much stuff for the outside, we don't even know each other. It should extend from the love from each other. So is it this whole thing's that way. The life of fall of humanity is based on this rough justice. You know, just do enough. You know, they always say you're supposed to look out for number one. You know what? And I agree with that. We should. It's just who's number one. Well, that, that Gail Sayers book, you know, I am third. I always like that saying. <coughs> the Lord is first. My friends and family are second. And I am third. So, yeah, look out for number one. I would too. But it all depends on. Because if you just look out for yourself, you're, you know, avenging injuries and returning favors, that's, that's what the world does. But the life of redeemed humanity, some of the Holy Spirit in us, the fact that we're pointed toward Christ, we know we have eternal life, we live like it. It's based on divine love, refusing to take revenge and overcoming evil with good. 
Because the main thing for disciples is to be a follower of God, to love God, and to make other disciples. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful teaching. It is hard. We're supposed to be perfect like your son. May we remember that the only way we're going to do that is if we have the spirit that points to the son in our hearts, know your word, and put you first. May we always try to complete love the way you did. May we not worry about what other people think. May we worry about what you think and those that uh, all. May we put you first, not us, but you and others always. Amen.